Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. If you are interested in learning more about our organization, please go to georgiamta.org. Today, we are joined by Portia Hawkins. Hello, Portia. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you today. So let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Presently, I am a private instructor of piano in my studio here in Roswell, Georgia. I'm also a freelance performer, accompanist. I also do lecture recitals specifically on African-American composers who have been classically trained. There is a large body of wonderful works of piano literature that I feel needs to be heard more and more. There's, there's, there's a lot of interest in that at this present time. This has been something I've been doing for a number of years and I would like to continue to promote this music. Great, tell me about how you got to where you are today. How, how did uh, your story get started? Well, um, my story began when I was a very young child in Orangeburg, South Carolina. I had a very special relationship with my maternal grandmother. My mother was her youngest child. And toward the end of my grandmother's life, she lived with us. There's often sayings among older people in the South that older people see things in children in terms of their potential. And for whatever reason, she felt that I had talent in music. So as I said, she was a very unusual person. You got to remember this was over this. She was born during the time of segregation and they were born. My parents, both my parents, my mother in particular, was born on a farm in South Carolina near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So by them living on a farm, of course, crops were good at years, some years and good at, not good in certain years. So my grandmother became an entrepreneur in her in that time, which was kind of unique, she would sell insurance policies. She would put my mom on a horse and they would go and sell small insurance policies in the neighborhood, in, the, in that area. She passed away. She had set aside an insurance policy for me. And my mother sat me down. I was, I think I was five years old when she passed. But even though that was a long time ago, we had such a special bond that I remember her to this day. She spent a lot of time with me. And so when my mother explained that this is what my grandmother had done, it became very important for me to follow through. So I was able to begin piano lessons. My parents bought me a, an old upright piano. I remember how it was a big, big instrument at that time to me. And I learned, started taking lessons from my local, the local piano teacher was our organist at our church. And so as the story goes, my father still was a member of his church in the, in the country area where he was born, which is a place called Roseville, South Carolina. So this was a church that was on a circuit. So ministers did not always come every Sunday. So the Sundays that they did come, they would have church. And my dad was decided to become the director of the choir or the music director. And they didn't have a pianist. So I was designated as a pianist. So being such a new student, I had to learn hymns. So the first two hymns that I learned were Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross and What a Friend We Have in Jesus, which were my grandmother's favorite hymns. Well, church people are such loving, kind, supportive people. So for the first six months, because I was still a student, they had to sing those same two hymns every Sunday. <laughs> so that was my first very strong support system. And as time went on, we attended church in Orangeburg, which was Trinity United Methodist Church. There I became my minister there, Reverend McCollum, was uh, also very supportive of children. And his son was an, a musician as well. 
and he developed a children's choir. So I played the piano and his son played the organ. And I did that for a number of years and that led me to high school. Can I ask um, how old you were when you started serving as a church pianist? Probably maybe 10 or 11 years old because I'd had piano since the age, I think I started at six. So I'd had enough years under my experience, under my belt where I was able to play hymns well enough. And, you know, we select the hymns and I think there was one Sunday designated for the children's choir. And then we did that every month and it became a very strong staple in my life. And it gave me confidence. There's nothing like the support of people in church to help you develop and develop self-confidence. Mm -hmm. So as time went on, Reverend McCollum's son was older and he graduated and I became the organist. So I learned how to play the organ through this experience. Uh, we had a Hammond organ at that time. Uh, and then later on, as I went on to high school, I was asked to be the accompanist for the high school choir. And I did that for four years. That was a marvelous experience because my teacher was a very, very progressive woman in her time. You have to remember that uh, this was a period in history where segregation was still taking place in the South. It wasn't until my, high, my senior year in high school that my high school was integrated with the white, then white high school. So for those four years, our music teacher was very much involved with helping us to develop our musical experiences. We did musicals. I remember we did Bye Bye Birdie. I did the, the score for, um, I still have programs from that. I still am in touch with some of my classmates who remember that. We became involved with what must have been all state chorus. I don't remember, but I remember we went somewhere in South Carolina where we were a choir. We sang music by Ralph Vaughn Williams. We sang spirituals. We just had a lovely gamut of styles of music. So I was very fortunate to have that kind of experience growing up in the environment that I did. But I have to also say that part of that also was enriched by the experience I had by having my father work on a college campus. My father was a, a professor of French and humanities at the college there in Orangeburg. It's a, two historically black colleges there, South Carolina State College, University now, and Claflin College. The Claflin College was the school that my father worked. And he, although he grew up in the country, he was sort of recruited. Back in that time, the school was developed just as many of the historically black colleges were. They were Quakers are members of, of different, very supportive groups that helped develop these schools. And uh, so he was recruited as a high school student and he eventually became a, a college student there. After graduating, he went to, to the army and came back and got his master's and he subsequently studied for his doctorate and became a professor of French. And he became, for a while he was the dean of the university and registrar. And uh, I grew up on that campus. Um, I used to kind of jokingly say there was one particular tree that I remember climbing on. I was like a little tomboy and I used to entertain myself on that campus because I was an only child. My mother worked for a long time in the county. So she would leave home early and my father would take me to school. And then I would come to the campus and be with him until my mother could pick me up. So even though at the time it seemed sort of routine for me, I realized that it was very unique because going back to the segregation aspect of it, this college consisted of faculty members of all different nationalities. There were people from China, there were people from India, there were people from, that were Caucasian. And so all of the children played together on that campus. But as soon as you came off that campus, it was traditionally seg segregated Jim Crow South. So my experience was very unique, I think. And now that I, I when I speak to some of my classmates who, who we, that I grew up with, we now reflect on the uniqueness and the specialness of our upbringing. 
And so after I finished high school, I studied at the college before when I got to high school, my teacher who taught me at, at the early part of my study told my parents that she felt I needed a, a, another teacher. So uh, she sent me to the college and I studied there with two teachers, uh, Dr. James George, who is now deceased, and also Dr. Geneva Handy Southall, who is also deceased. Dr. Southall is probably known among African-American and scholars all over for her dissertation and her book on Blind Tom, who is also a historical figure in African-American music history. And that prepared me to go to Fisk University, where I studied and majored in piano. I had the privilege of studying with two very fine pianists, Matthew Kennedy and his wife, Ann Gamble Kennedy, both very talented and very, very supportive teachers. They too were pioneers in that Mr. Kennedy was a product of Macon, Georgia. No, I'm sorry, America's Georgia, but he studied in Macon at that time and eventually got to Juilliard. And uh, Mrs. Kennedy studied in New York with Ray Lev. She was a, a product of West Virginia. And they had a wonderful daughter who is now also a concert pianist, also a filmographer, and they, she lives in New York and she still continues to promote their legacy. And I, while I was there, I became a member of the well-known Fist Jubilee Singers. This year, they celebrated their 150th year in existence. And I was very happy to be a part of that celebration. I was able to do an online virtual recital with famed singer, Dr. Oral Moses, who is a, a professor emeritus at Kennesaw State College, uh, also a Jubilee singer and an ex expert on e Negro spirituals. The program was done at Kennesaw State University and it is now available on YouTube for those who may want to look at it. It's a program of Negro spirituals. And of that, in that program, there are arrangements and compositions by Fisk graduates, Undine Smith-Moore and John Work, who was one of the earlier directors of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Upon graduation from Fisk, I was re recruited by a now very successful musician slash president of could see the University of Richmond, Ronald Crutcher. He was a student at the time. And uh, there, was, there were provisions made for them to recruit students for uh, Yale University. And I was one of the recruitees and I went there after graduation immediately and uh, studied for my master's. I was there for two years and graduated with a master in piano performance. And then my career began. Uh, my first job was back in South Carolina I worked at Claflin College and then at South Carolina State College, but I had grown up there and I wanted to seek other things. So I went to New Jersey um, one of the summers, I think the summer after I had finished one year at South Carolina State and I was able to study with someone I had admired. No, that's, I'm not sure if that's the right order. No, I, I got a job at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then during one of the summers that I was there, I was able to um, study with George Walker. And he's a well-known, well-respected composer, African-American composer and extraordinarily fine pianist as well. He's passed on in the last several years. Then my career took me to Virginia State College and that's Virginia State University now. Many of these schools started off as colleges and they're now universities. And there I met my husband and we married and I moved back to North Carolina and eventually it brought us to Atlanta. And I've been here ever since. And uh, this is where we've settled. We've been here since the late seventies and our son was born here and we've I've established my career here, had wonderful opportunities, uh, being an adjunct at several of the colleges here in Atlanta, uh, North DeKalb. At that time, it was Georgia, it's per Georgia Perimeter College now. I think it was DeKalb College at the time. 
And then I also worked at Agnes Scott at Spelman. Uh, I did one semester at Clark Atlanta and I did some accompanying over at Morehouse College. Just wonderful experiences, got a chance to do a lot of accompanying, uh, did some performances and did some research and uh, lecture recitals on this African-American composers. I wanna backtrack a little bit. When I was at Southern University, this was the beginning of my strong interest in African-American piano music by classically trained composers. There was, my chairman was Dr. Aldridge Adkins and his mother-in-law was Altona Trent Johns. Many people in Atlanta area, particular uh, in the AU Center would know her because she and Undine Smith Moore, who is also well-known composer, established the first collection of African-American music of all styles on any college campus, historically black colleges. So Virginia State College was where they were based. And there were many fine musicians who came through their tutelage. And so they established this wonderful collection. So by the time I met Mrs. Johns, she had retired and was living uh, with Dr. Atkins and his wife, who was her daughter. And we spent many days sitting, talking. She was just like a walking encyclopedia. She had an incredible memory. Uh, she shared with me that she had actually heard Rachmaninoff play in person. Uh, she knew of so many of our well-respected musicians in the African-American culture. She had herself been a fine pianist in her earlier years and shared with me some of the music that I now am continuing to present and share. In 2000, I did a CD that was successfully played on WABE and other stations across the country that consisted primarily of this music. It was intended to be the first of several recordings. However, with media changing and CDs not being as profitable or not as in much demand, that has not happened, but that has not stopped me from dreaming about it and hoping that eventually maybe something will come about. But every opportunity that I get, I try to share a little bit of this information. Um, one thing that is striking about your story is, is the fact that you went back and forth between living in the South and living in the North, back to living in the South and back to living in the North. Can you unpack that a little for, for me and for our listeners? Were there noticeable cultural differences between life in the South and life in the North for you? Yes, that at times was somewhat of a challenge. One of the first memories that comes to mind is the distinct difference in the South's weather. I remember it wasn't until, because when I lived in Nashville as a student for four years, snow happened, but not in any meaningful way. And so I remember, I was also a member of the Fifth Choir and we had a tour. And I think we ended up in Detroit, we did some other places in the Northern area of the country and there was snow and that was like a foreign element to me. I remember seeing snow as a child because my mother had relatives in Philadelphia, but it was not anything that I experienced quite a bit. But the memory that's most vivid is when I went to Yale and studied because I lived in an apartment off campus and I had to walk in the snow to go to the practice room to practice. I did not like that. That was not any fun because my feet would be almost frozen. My hands were numb. It took me at least uh, 10 minutes to warm up, you know? And um, I, I remember almost, I think I did cry because I was just not used to this. This was not something I was happy about. So, and then too, growing up in the South, especially growing up with my father, he was born in an environment where people always spoke, even, you know, even if you didn't know people when you passed them, you greeted them, hello, you know. And uh, I had kind of gotten accustomed to that kind of thing. 
And then when I got to New Haven, it was cold in terms of temperature and it was cold in terms of culture. I mean, it took me a minute to realize that if I said hello to someone that they were not necessarily going to respond to me. And I, I had to kind of get used to that. But as it is everywhere you go, there's always some very kind people who always you find. And there were, I remember the first year I was at Yale, I was the only African-American young female in the school of music that year. I was not the first, I was not the last, I was not you know, the only, but that year there were four other African-American males and they kind of took me under their wing, particularly Alvin Singleton and Ronald Crutcher. They kind of treated me like their little sister or their, you know, supports. They were a very strong support system for me. They had been at Yale maybe a year or two prior to my coming. And uh, there were other two other uh, males who were recruited that year as well. And so they made an effort to make sure that I was okay. I was roommates with one wonderful woman. Her name was Sarah Miranda Vargas. And we became friends. Uh, she, I think she now lives in, in Europe somewhere. She was a very fine flutist. And there were just some wonderful experiences that I have of those people that helped me get through that shock, I call it, cultural shock. When I went to Yale, I was there with some students who were phenomenal. They had had so many wonderful experiences musically, they had studied at some of the country's finest universities and conservatories. They had already been to Europe and done things that perhaps I had not done. But here again, I had two wonderful teachers who were always supportive of me. And I was able to successfully graduate and develop a lot of interesting, had, had a lot of interesting experiences, some of which did not really register with me until years after I left. I remember when I was teaching a course in music history at one of the schools I worked at many years later, I remember um, coming across some information about maybe someone like Bach. I can't remember the details. And it all of a sudden, the, the information I had gotten at Yale became, became much more meaningful to me. But at the time, it just kind of went over my head. I have to admit, when I was in college, music history was not my favorite subject. I did it. I did my work. I graduated and I was a successful student. But I was not all that fond of reading about, you know, something that happened a long time ago. But I must say now, I am very fond of reading about, in fact, any music that I study now, I try to find something to read about it because it gives the music much more interest. And I find that it's also a very good tool for using to introduce music when you're doing a lecture recital. I've, I've gotten feedback from my audiences that telling them a little bit about what they're about to hear has given them a lot more interest and enjoyment of the music because of that aspect of my presentation. If we can go back to um, the beginning of your story, you talk about getting started in piano and the influence of your grandmother. Do you remember what practicing was like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated? Well, um, yes and no. There were periods where I loved to play and practice. And one thing that I've been told that I do well is sight read. And I think that comes from the fact that when you're an only child, you learn to entertain yourself. My dad had also, as I had said earlier, he had gone to the army. And we, while he was in Europe, he studied, he was able to get a book. I don't know if he actually went to Holland, but it was a big book. I can't find it now, but it's probably very much deteriorated because of the age but there was just a large volume of some of the classics that some of which we play now, some of which we don't. And I would sit down and, and entertain myself and I would just play this music. And even though I did not, had not had any lessons with this music, it, it just interested me to just sit and play for long periods of time. And then there were periods when I think as young people do, they, I just didn't particularly want to practice. And I remember my mom 
or my dad, I think it was my mom sat me down and said, you've got to remember your grandmother provided this for you. You're doing this for your grandmother. And that seemed to be just enough to get me back on track. I found that that was something I did well. I was not necessarily athletic. I had friends at school, but I think if you would ask anyone from my elementary school, or well, particularly from my um, high school years, do you remember Portia Schuler? And they say, oh yeah, that's that girl that used to play the piano. That was my thing. That was what gave me some type of notoriety, if you want to call it. So I realized that that was something that I could do well. And so I always tried to make sure that I was good at it. Yes, I, um, I had my good and bad times with practice. Yeah. You speak so highly of your teachers. Do you have a favorite memory of your teachers that you can share with us? Well, one of them, I have several, but the one that comes to mind right now is, is uh, my experience with my teacher at Fisk. Mrs. Kennedy. Now, just to give you a short background of what happened there, I studied with both of them. When you walked into the music building at Fisk, it was a building that had studios to the left and to the right. Mr. Kennedy's was on the left and Mrs. Kennedy's was on the right. So Mr. Kennedy decided at, I think my senior year to go back and study at Vanderbilt University, which was also in Nashville to, to, to get his doctorate. So Mrs. Kennedy became my teacher my senior year. Well, when I was a senior, there, there were lots of unrest on the campuses in Nashville as it was across the country. There were riots. My sophomore year, Martin Luther King was killed. So there was riot, there were riots and unrest and so much so that we were sent home several times my senior year. And there was a lot of concern among us seniors as to whether or not we would graduate because of these disruptions. And um, so it was a little bit of anxiety on the part of us as students. And so at that time, I was a senior and I had a very zealous godmother who decided that she wanted to be a matchmaker. <laughs> now, where is this going? Fisk University was right across the street from the Harry Medical College where a lot of the young ladies from my school would find partners and marry. They, you know, it was a big deal to marry a doctor. So my godmother had a student. She taught at North Carolina A&T University. And I think she had decided that this was the one particular student that she had was going to be my husband. So she promptly sent him over from Meharry to meet me. And well, needless to say, that didn't work out. But once he came over and walked me to the music building. And I was about to prepare for my senior recital and my teacher, Mrs. Kennedy, was just a wonderful supporter. But she, when we were students, our teachers taught the whole student. They were not just interested in your music. They interested in your life as well. So I was standing outside talking and I think she saw him out there. So I had began my lesson and I, I guess I wasn't playing things to her satisfaction. So she just rattled off. She says, you need to stop fooling around and get your lesson and stop fooling around with that young man. And my mouth dropped open because I had no idea that she had seen me talking to this young man. But she was wise because we didn't get, the relationship never materialized, but it has become something that I do in my own way in my teaching as much as I can, because parenting now is different from the way it was once. There are parents who have certain, well, they have certain amounts of how much they allow you to parent their child or to help discipline their child. But I tell everyone that comes in my studio, when you come in here, you're my child for the time that you're walking the door till you leave. And I call, one of the things that I feel that I do as a teacher is I teach the whole child. I don't just teach them the notes and the music. I like to teach them, okay, this is how you conduct yourself. And if you play this well, this will give you confidence. And I feel that sometimes the piano lessons for many of my students is not going to be the end all of their existence. They're not going to become performers, musicians, but they are going to become meaningful human beings, productive human beings. 
and developing a certain amount of confidence and having a certain manner about you is essential to your success. And I feel that my teaching them piano is a means of which I can help them to develop those skills. I mean, if they come, if they talk to me and they're not respectful, I check them on that. I'm never, I try not to be too harsh, but I let them realize that that's not an acceptable way to talk to people. I speak to them about how they present themselves when they perform on stage, how they acknowledge by bowing that they're thankful, that appreciative that the audience has listened to them. So those are the kinds of things that I, I feel my teachers brought to me. Another incidence is how loving they were. The Kennedys at that time, the Nashville Symphony was there. They would take several of us students, put us in their car, and pick up the tab for the symphony tickets. We were very privileged and not not even really recognizing just what a wonderful gift that was. Most of us were not able or did not really have the insight to realize that the symphony was there and it was going a growth experience. And so there are so many things that I have to be thankful to them for. And I have to be thankful for all of my teachers because I can say that all of them offered me something really helpful and special. I find myself quoting my first teacher at South Carolina State. He was a stickler for scales. And he used to say, Miss Lady, he called me Miss Lady. And I have one student now that I call Miss Lady. Miss Lady, you have to practice your scales. And I, I mean, that was I knew when I walked in the room that that was the first thing I had to do. And so, um, yes, I, I just feel that I was enriched with wonderful, wonderful mentors and teachers. Yes. That's wonderful. That's an excellent transition to our next question. I think you've already started touching on it, uh, but feel free to elaborate if there are any additional thoughts, which is how do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? First of all, I like to try to get to know the child. I've learned that you cannot teach everybody the same way. I try to get a feel for their skill set. I try to find out what their strengths and weaknesses are. I know, for example, this probably happens far more for many teachers. Most times, historic many students' left hand is weaker than the right is the right hand. And um, having taught on the college level, many times I was given students who were instrumentalists. And of course their left hand was like a foreign object because they had no experience playing with both hands. And reading two clefs was a real challenge for many of them. Some of them were quite good, but not many, a lot of them were not. So one of the things that I try to do is I will observe what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I try for example, if they have a weak left hand, I try to start them off with pieces that have a very, well, a very limited movement in the left hand, but yet something that is musical so that they don't feel like they're just playing something very bland or very elementary. Most times the right hand moves around more. I'm a stickler for for fingering because I find that um, I tell people that the difference between good fingering and poor fingering means that your phrasing and your articulation is gonna make all the difference in the world. And I try to even sometimes, if it's a dance, particularly with young children, this also carries over in rhythm. If they are not aware of the steadiness of the rhythm or using good fingering, that this is going to create an unevenness. And I try to tell them, I said, now you've gotta remember you're playing for somebody to dance to. And if they are not getting a steady beat, they're going to trip all over themselves. And I usually kind of make a you know, joke of it. And, and I may even try to dance while they're playing. And I try to give them a visual of like if it's Baroque music, I try to tell them how the clothing that the people wore had something to do with how well they could move or couldn't move. I, I kind of exaggerate the powdered wigs and all the clothes they wore and how they had to move more gracefully because the wig would fall off. I mean, whatever I can do to kind of engage them, to get them to, to kind of pull into the whole thing, because Baroque music to many children is so far, they're so far removed. And I mean, they will tell you that something happened in 19, 
80 is the olden days because they don't have any reference point. But so anything I can do to bring them, I even have pictures in my studio of people from the Baroque period or I'll pull up something and uh, sometimes I'll play something for them. Whatever I can do to engage them because I want them to have an experience that they can incorporate into their lives no matter what they go into. I even tell their parents when I interview them how music helps them to develop certain skills beyond the music. For example, with the research that I've done, I found that people who are going to medical school, if they have shown on their resume that they have had so many years of piano, if they're given points for certain things, that gives them an extra point. There are industries or certain fields of the industry that will hire people who have absolutely no training in the field that they are applying. They will give people who've had 10 years of music a job because they know they're trainable. One thing that helps you, one thing that piano learning piano helps you to do is to be able to listen and follow directions. And so I think that is a skill and learn how to analyze and to organize. Um, because one of the ways that I teach students too is when I give them a new piece, many of them will look at it and say, oh, that's hard. Or oh, this is long. And so I kind of what I call trick them or give them a boost by showing them a sort of an analysis of the music, a very basic. Okay, look at this line. Is this line different from that line? Where do you see similarities? Now, see, you really don't have to memorize but seven measures because this is just like this. And then, and when you do it and break it down that way, you've done two things. You've shown them how to identify things that are the same. You've also made them feel that it is a doable thing and it helps them to organize their music, and they can transfer that skill to other things that they do. We all know that there's a lot of math and science in music. So as we know, many people who are in the sciences and in math or either other analytical types of work do very well in music many times because this is a transferable skill. Those are the goals I try to get. I'm not interested in how many of them I can get to Carnegie Hall or get how many I can get them to win competitions or whatever. I'm interested in them leaving me with some skills that they've improved on or that they've learned and that they can apply to life. I just want to share with our listeners that uh, Portia was recognized as the Georgia Music Teachers Association Teacher of the Year this past year in 2020. And um, as part of that, she submitted a list of teaching tips. And I, I just want to share that very, very last teaching tip that you had provided for, for us and for the organization. You write, I always make every effort to be positive and encouraging, making positive comments during and at the end of each lesson. I try to teach my students not just how to play the piano, but lessons in self-confidence. At my recitals, I always recognize any special achievement that each student has accomplished. And I think from this comment, I can see your heart for your students and, and exactly what you talked about, teaching to the whole person, the whole student, and not just musical accomplishments, but really building up the person. Yes, yes. Um, let's go on to our next question. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? Well, I find that the parents that are the most supportive yield the most successful students. And I try to, one thing that I do is I try to have an interview. In fact, I almost insist on every person that I teach now have an interview and I sit down with them and explain to them not only my policies, but what I would expect from each student for them to be the most successful. And I always tell the parents to please realize that I see those children once a week. They live with them. 
and they are supposed to help me. I expect them to give me feedback as to what is working and what is not. Because as I said earlier, everyone cannot be taught the same way successfully. Sometimes in the course of teaching a child, I discover they have a learning disability. I I don't like to use the word disability. They have a learning challenge. They learn differently. If I sense that, I try to gently bring that to the parent. I do find that sometimes that's not successful because the parent does not want to bring that into the situation. But I will always say, this is not a stigma. This is, I may not use that word, but I'll say, I've discovered that children who have who learned differently often have higher IQs than children who, who, know, who do learn not traditionally. And this is to make them realize that this is not something they should hide. If we can find a way that they learn well, then this will help us to help them to be more successful. Sometimes I find ways without their input. If I find that I'm running into challenges with the student, I will send them a gentle note to the parent. Please help me to see if this child can practice more often. Uh, Is there something going on? I, I will reach out and ask them. And sometimes they will respond to me and tell me this is going. I said, now if they're having a lot of homework or if they're having something going on in their lives that is is challenging or particularly different, it's prohibiting them from doing well, please just tell me that this is not a good time. You don't have to go into details about what's going on if it's too personal. I said, but that way I'll know how to temper my lessons with them rather than to expect them to do more than what they're capable of. And those, sometimes the feedback is so helpful. And I encourage, some teachers do not do this, but I don't mind having parents sit in on my lessons if they are quiet and not disruptive. And sometimes this is helpful too, because if you've got a child who's really a little reluctant about practicing, one of the tricks that they use quite frequently is they will go and practice, but they'll play the same music they learned two weeks ago. And sometimes I will send to the parent in an email their current assignment, or I'll ask them, are they practicing this? Are they doing that? And so I try to engage the parents as well. And if they're cooperative, sometimes it works and many, sometimes it doesn't, but uh, it doesn't stop me from trying. As I said at the beginning, the ones who are the most successful are the ones whose parents are most engaged. Yes. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects you are currently working on? I love to do lecture recitals. I have one accompaniment job right now for a vocal student coming up in the next two weeks. And I've been asked to perform on a series at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Atlanta in December. It's a luncheon recital. It'll consist of a half hour recital. And what I will do is I use my lecture recital format and I'll play some traditional music and I want to introduce to some and to continue to perpetuate the music of two African-American women uh, who have uh, now being rediscovered and and celebrated, uh, Margaret Bonds and Florence Price. There's a lot of buzz now about the music of both of them. Um, we've been fortunate to have people like Louise Toppin from the University of Michigan, who has edited some music of Margaret Bonds. And there's lots of editions of music coming out of, I think, Arkansas and other places of the music of Florence Price. She's, there's even a, a festival that's being held in her honor. And there's recently been a release of a book by uh, Ray Linda Brown, who's now passed on, and other scholars are beginning to play and discuss her music and her life. They were just incredible people, strong women in their time, and their music is now being performed and celebrated. So I want to be a part of that group of those who are celebrating their music. So yes, those are the two things right before me. And I love to just do presentations to some of the music teacher groups. I do adjudications from time to time 
all of these things interest me and keep me abreast of current things, of trends. And it frankly keeps me on my toes. And so I'm grateful that I'm able to do all of these things. I enjoy all of them. And I look forward to them having opportunities in the future. I'm curious, do you incorporate uh, African-American composers in your teaching with your students? I, you know, when I think of Margaret Bonds or Price, uh, I think of their music as being incredibly advanced and difficult. Do you have sources that um, you use in your teaching? Well, I'm very happy to say that, and yes, that has been uh, a challenge. I have one student who just learned uh, the Joplin pineapple rag this year successfully. At this time in my career, I have late intermediate students that are more my most advanced students. And I am so delighted to see that the National Federation of Music Clubs has now included music of Florence Price, Margaret Barnes, Samuel, I think Samuel Coleridge Taylor. I don't know if William Grant Steele's music has been put on there yet, but that is one composer whose music I feel is much, is very worthy, but yes, the music of these composers, I think, I think the reason why I thought about that is that perhaps when they were given grants to perform, they were often for musicians who were successful and already very advanced in their performances. So they had to prepare music that was going to be a challenge and of interest to these musicians. But going back to your question initially, I've discovered in the course of discovering Florence Price wrote a lot of pedagogical music and it's being published now. And so I will be incorporating some of her, she's and has exercises that somewhat remind me of Cherney. They're musical, but yet they're not all in unison. And they're for the very beginner student. And I'm hoping that some other people will recognize this body that she's written. She was an incredible pianist organist and orchestral composer. She also wrote, I think, for string instruments. So she's probably going to be the one person that I would use for some of my younger ones. There are other pieces that I have brought to groups that can be somewhat challenging, but are doable with a student who has perhaps that kind of energy that would practice. There's some young short pieces by Hale Smith. Uh, there's one piece by Alvin Singleton that are accessible. They're one pagers and they are, some of them have, it, it would be interesting to a younger student. You know, we when we look at the Federation list, you see bluesy pieces, ragtime pieces. The pieces that I'm speaking of have that kind of flavor. And I think they would probably be well received if they were introduced. So yes, I, I do appreciate you bringing that to the forefront and I have been told that. So in recent preparations that I've done for presentations, I've tried to bring to the listeners these pieces of music that would perhaps be a little bit more accessible. Yeah. Great, that's wonderful. Excellent resources. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? Well, when I received my award at, and was, uh, was honored at the North Fulton luncheon, I gave a special tribute to my dear friend, Linnell Nash. I came here to Roswell. I, we were living originally in Tucker when we moved here. My husband came here, was transferred here, his job transferred him. And then we moved to Roswell. And Linnell Nash was the first teacher that I reached out to. And she in turn introduced me to North DeKalb. Well, actually at that time, it was North DeKalb that I joined because that North Fulton was not in existence. And so I thanked her for introducing me to Georgia Music Teachers. This is the organization that I've been a member of for the longest since I've been in, in Georgia, uh, since I've been here in Atlanta. And it has been a wonderful experience. I've met some extraordinarily fine people. I've been exposed to some very talented musicians. Judging gives me such a wonderful opportunity to hear some of the fine talent that we have and the teachers, the kind of teaching, the quality of teaching that is being done here among our students. So I stayed active in this group all these years. 
and plan to remain active. And as a result of this, I became a member of other organizations in Atlanta, um, musical organizations. But this was the, my beginning and uh, it has been a wonderful journey. Yes. Great, this is our last question. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? I have several persons that I, I call my mentees. And from time to time, we talk about challenges that come up. And one of the things that many of them find is a challenge trying to find things to do here in Atlanta that will give them, I call an anchor here or some type of presence or some type of stability to their career. And I tell them that everyone's journey is different. You find your niche that works for you. Everybody does not go through the same process. And I always tell them to find other things that they do well, other than teach piano as a source of support financially, if everything doesn't come all at once. This is, I think, an important aspect of it because all of us know that teaching piano or many of us musicians are not going to become wealthy teaching music. <laughs> it is not that kind of career, but it can be so enriching and can be such an enjoyable journey if you can see the beauty in it and move forward with that kind of understanding. But all of us have things that we need to financially support ourselves with. So I usually try to encourage them to find something else that is an anchor and not depend solely on this and set up goals and set standards that are something that you can live with, you know, for a long term. Uh, don't settle or don't, you know, lower your standards because you feel you need to. And I think on the long run, you will become a respectable and successful musician. The journey may not be smooth all the time, but the long-term result, I think, is good. I, I feel that has happened with me. There have been sort of called bumps in the road where there were periods in my career where I was not able to be as active as I'd like because of family obligations. Um, there was, I became a caregiver for family members for a number of years, and that prevented me from being able to perform as much as I'd like. And, um, but I tried to keep my skills up enough to still be able to continue once that period in my life had ended. So those are the kinds of things I suggest because, and also be a support for others. I think having people around you that are positive, because unfortunately, when we are all competing for some of the same things, you're going to come across some aggressive and perhaps not so friendly or not so supportive people. I think you should recognize that that exists, but I think you should find supportive persons or person so that as you move through, you always stay positive. And I found that those kinds of things have helped me tremendously, yes. Well, Portia, thank you. That concludes our discussion today, but thank you so much for your time and for your unique perspective and the stories that you shared with me and with our listeners today. This was a fun conversation for me and I wish you happy teaching and happy students. <laughs>